like to welcome you to faith and to our resurrection service as we've been uh, celebrating uh, the Easter rise of our Savior. Uh, it's been a great time to have the leadership of our church to bring us into the presence of God. Thanks for Elder Bill and for Trina and for Mark and for the music team, the choir, uh, for the ushers and greeters, for the sound team, and, and for all those who've been involved with uh, bringing us into a fresh experience of the resurrection of Christ. I want to especially thank those who might be visiting us uh, for the first time or maybe just recently. I want to thank you for taking the risk of being in our presence and coming to church. I know it's a risk uh, for many because it's often hard sometimes to be around Christians <laughs> or those who profess uh, to be Christians. Uh, there's wounds and and so I don't know what your story is. There's lots of stories, but uh, we don't take that lightly, and we are grateful that you're here. I had a, a, uh, a sister who told me that she has, is having a hard time confessing that she's a Christian at work because she sees others who profess that, and their lives and their actions and their words are not consistent. And so she's very tenuous about even letting people know that she's a Christian. Sometimes I feel like I don't want to let people know I'm a Christian either. Can I get it? Amen. You know, because, and I can tell you, sometimes I don't want to even tell people I'm a pastor. But if there's one thing uh, that keeps me coming back in spite of the disappointments of others and of the church and even the disappointments with my own failings and faults and remaining sins, it is this single stubborn event. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this obstinate, <laughs> historic event that keeps driving me back to the faith, that keeps me fighting for the faith. And you know, Jesus, in the passage that we're going to look at today, he comes to those who are doubting and who are disappointed and who are feeling discouraged, who are faith strugglers. And he comes to them to provide assurances and reassurances. And, and Jesus is coming to us as well, and he's coming to you. And so we're looking at the next passage from Luke 24, where Jesus is uh, meeting with his apostles after he had uh, met with these two on the road to Emmaus, and the two on the road to Emmaus were... We're trying to persuade the apostles that it was true that Jesus rose. And on verse 36, we see the following. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. There's an alligator in the pool. That's what I said with my brother to a lifeguard at the Rusty Rock Swim Club. I was about 10 years old. My brother was about 11. My mom would drop us off as before she would go to work. And my brother and I saw this beast in the pool, and we came up to the lifeguard who was mowing the grass, flashing our hands, trying to get his attention to stop. And uh, he eventually stopped looking at us like some disgusted little obnoxious twerps. And, uh, and we tried to tell him, and, he, he, and it was just nonsense to him. And he just roomed the lawnmower up again and just kept going. I'm not going to stop for these little brats. And so, uh, you know, I don't know how we got him to stop. I, maybe my brother laid in front of the lawnmower. I don't know. But he eventually stopped, humored us, and he went down to look into the pool. And there at the base of this, you know, chlorine blue pool was about a four-foot-long alligator slithering along the bottom. And soon the manager and the various staff and, and anybody that was around there that early morning uh, were just gawking, eyes wide open, about this beast here in Baltimore in Randallstown, which is about 45 minutes away, uh, with an alligator in the swimming pool. Uh, soon they called the zoo, apparently, and the zoo came out and, and uh, some big necks, nets, and after a lot of uh, fighting and frolicking, they finally captured this, this animal, this beast, and, uh, you know, I'll never forget that day. I'll just never forget that day, and I do know this, is that there was an alligator in the pool that day. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, no one had expected him to rise. He told his disciples several times before he was arrested and crucified, he tells them that he would be risen on the third day, but they just couldn't even comprehend it. They had no vocabulary for it. It was totally out of place, unexpected. They would not believe it. Uh, and Jesus had to do a lot of persuasion. And this incident that we find here is just one day of persuasion where he meets at three different occasions with various disciples. But we find in Acts chapter 1, which is the next book, is that Jesus meets with his disciples over a period of 40 days, providing what he calls uh, infallible uh, substantiating proofs to show for sure that he was bodily resurrected. Jesus didn't, didn't surround himself with just a gullible, you know, easygoing, easy-believed people. He, he, he brought himself uh, a blue, you know, roughneck fisherman. He got himself exacting, uh, you know, tax collectors, and he got himself some militant extremist zealots 
And these were the followers, so Jesus knew that he had to do a lot of convincing in order to persuade them. And so here in the 24th chapter of Luke, on this first day, this is the third occasion where he meets particularly with his chosen apostles, and he seeks to convince them, and he convinces them in order to convince you and I here that Jesus did rise from the dead. And here we see resurrection peace, resurrection proofs, and resurrection power. Resurrection peace, the first words out of Jesus' mouth to these gathered frightened disciples was peace to you. In Greek, it's Irene. In Hebrew, it's shalom. But it is a normal Hebrew greeting, uh, wishing the person the highest blessing that you could bless upon a person. Of course, shalom, peace means, of course, uh, not being uh, frightened, uh, not uh, being disturbed, uh, being at rest. You are safe. You're secure. But peace also has a full expression of prosperity, that you have no needs. You have everything that you ever wanted. It is flourishing. It is human relationships at peace that are restored. But there is an additional thing that Jesus brought and what he meant when he said, peace to you, that he was this one who would bring to God for them. And so we find that the nature of God's peace uh, was that there's been a broken relationship between God's created humans, a relationship that has been broken because of, of offenses of sin, of saying, I don't want to believe in you, I don't want to follow you, I deny that you're my father creator, I want to do my life my way. And Jesus came to break that rebellion and to pay for that sin and so when he stretched his hands out on the cross, he took on your rebellion and my rebellion and your sin and my sin. And he exchanged, it's the great exchange that he exchanged our sin for his righteousness. And so now we are what's been called justified. That means that God sees you as perfectly innocent. In Christ, when you trust in him, you have purely been declared by the highest tribunal in heaven that you are without fault, without sin. You've always done everything right. You have never done anything wrong. And so what we find in Romans, therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing left for us to do. It's all been done. All we do it's receive it as a gift. It's to trust and to rest upon him. What does this mean, peace to you? It means this. God is no longer angry with you. you he is no longer angry with you. In Christ, you are loved and secure. You are honored. God will never be angry with you. He looks at you as he looks at his perfect son. That's what this means. And that's what the resurrection means. The resurrection means that God has accepted this offering, this sacrifice of his son. Now, he might discipline you. There might be suffering because of 
good parent, a loving parent, is always thinking about how to help grow their child up, how to discipline them in a way that will produce a harvest of fruit. But God is never and will never be angry with you in Christ. And so when Jesus says, peace to you, Jesus is not merely wishing peace or nice things. He is speaking as the Prince of Peace who has brought, secured, and purchased peace to the fullest, highest peace you could ever hope to receive. The resurrection confirms Christ's work that this is good news of peace to you. But there's two quick things you should know about this peace. It's a peace that means that you are valued and that you are honored. You are valued and that you are also beloved. Luke begins this section by telling us that there's these two obscure disciples uh, from the road to Emmaus that he met. But before that, he meets with the women at the tomb. That's how Luke opens up, and that's how all the gospel accounts open up. At the resurrection, early in the morning, Mary, the mother of uh, James, and Mary Magdalene, who uh, apparently had seven demons cast out of her, and Joanna here, uh, they came to the tomb, and, and they were the first ones to see Jesus. Now, women in that day were considered second-class citizens. They weren't allowed to be uh, testify in the court of law because they weren't thought as trustworthy. They, could, they were put in the same category as slaves and children. They were... Uh, they didn't have any rights in divorce. A husband could divorce a woman for any and every reason at, at the whim. Uh, but when Jesus rose from the dead, the God of the scriptures, the God of the universe says, the first witnesses are going to be women of the resurrection. The women who had no right to give testimony in court, God says, they're going to be my first evangels. And so God comes after the marginal. And then he meets with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the road to Emmaus, we don't, we've never even heard these disciples before. One is unnamed, obscure. Cleopas, he was never mentioned before. But here, Jesus, the next people that he meets with are these two disciples. It could have been a husband and a wife walking. And then Jesus meets with his apostles. But what does this say? This is what it says. It says there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. That Jesus goes out of his way to make sure that every disciple knows that they are beloved and valued by him. There's no hierarchy of Christ, no partiality of his affections. I was very grateful. I was one of five children, and my parents made it very clear that they loved all of their children equally. There was no favorites in our family. Of course, some people would say, yeah, I was mom's favorite. But we all knew that my parents just loved us all, and that is a gift. We each have different parts and different places and different functions and callings in the kingdom of God, but Jesus does not show favoritism. In fact, Jesus and the God of the scriptures, he goes after the marginal, he goes after the nobodies, the ones that have been discarded in society. And the next series that we're going to do is going to be a look at uh, Ruth in the Old Testament, Ruth was a woman who was classed, she was a Moabitess, which was a, a foreign, this kind of a despised uh, people group uh, uh, away from Israel. And this woman uh, happened to marry an Israelite, and that man died, and so then she became a widow. And then we find that she's impoverished, 
And then she has to go to Israel with, with, uh, with her mother-in-law. And, uh, you know, she's kind of an outcast there. Even uh, her presence was a threat to real estate ventures. But here's the deal. God valued her. He treasured her. And Ruth became the great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ. You see, the scriptures remind us that the God of the scriptures is a God who values and who, who calls the marginal beloved. And so if you've ever felt marginalized in the world, if you've ever felt overlooked, underloved, discarded, sidelined, devalued, dismissed because you weren't gifted enough or talented enough or smart enough or strong enough or maybe you weren't the right complexion or hue or race or background or pedigree or you didn't have the right degrees, what you need to know is that Jesus values you. He loves you. He comes after you, and he treasures you. He reveals himself, and he reminds you that you're important and that you're esteemed. But Jesus eventually did meet with his 12 apostles, the last group on that first day. Uh, in that frightened state, he says to them, peace to you peace to you. What was the punch for them when Jesus appeared suddenly and said peace to them? Well, I believe it mainly said to them that they are forgiven and they are honored. Well, just a few days before this, these disciples had scattered when Jesus was arrested. Jesus was considered to possibly be a threat to the Roman government, and the Jews said that he was an enemy of Caesar. Well, any kind of insurrection or threat of insurrection was, was strongly uh, uh, attacked by the Romans. And so these disciples knew that not only was their master's life in danger, but theirs as well. And so we find them scattering. Peter, as we know, denied Christ three times. And so here, when Jesus meets them, they probably were not only feeling frightened, they probably also felt shame. They probably also felt guilty that they had left and abandoned their Lord in this time of greatest need. And when Jesus penetrates those closed doors and he meets them for the first time, did he say, why, you weak little cowards, abandoning me in my hour of need. How could you, after all that I've done for you, why even went to the cross for you? But no, he says none of that. What does Jesus say? He says, peace. Peace to you. Shalom to you. You're forgiven. You're honored. I love you. I have plans for you. I am committed to you more than ever. There was a recent article in uh, Christianity Today magazine uh, that called Return to Shame by Andy Crouch. And he, it says that we feel less guilty than ever before and more ashamed than ever before. And he talks about a shift in our culture where away from the idea of people feeling guilty about possible moral you know, failures, but people feeling more ashamed, uh, publicly humiliated. And he and he mentions this one aspect called doxing, where uh, people take indiscretion, uh, you know, private information in your past that could be on the web, 
and exploit it and expose it. You know, in the past, you could be going to school or walking across the sidewalk and trip and fall, and it would just be, you know, a moment of, you know, momentary, uh, you know, humiliation. But now, somebody can, like, take a video clip on their iPhone of you falling and then plaster it on the web or on some social media for all the world to see and to repeat it over and over and over again. And the reality is that many people are feeling just publicly shamed. And so shame, uh, the, the feeling of being um, unworthy and publicly uh, devalued is becoming a very major, major thing. Well, when Jesus comes to these disciples, he never mentions their abandonment. He never mentions to Peter that he denied him three times. He never brings it up again. It's forgotten. Micah 7, 19 says, You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea and cast them into a sea of what's been called the sea of forgetfulness, infinitely removed. I really love Psalm 34, 5, which says, Those who look to him are radiant, their faces are never covered with shame. Uh, so Damien shared with us a very powerful and uh, humbling testimony of, uh, of his relationship failures. Uh, he confessed he let his parents down. He let, him, he let others down. He let himself down. And he literally said he fell backwards. He came to the end of himself as he was on that floor but on that floor, falling down, he met God at the bottom of his life. He acknowledged how God blessed him in spite of his failures. And he came to understand what grace means, that it's a gift not deserved. And he said, you can't mess up too many times. He won't leave me or forsake me. And so Damien personally found Christ, and he found in Christ that this was the the God that pursued him in his darkest hour and loved him still. You know, one of the things, uh, I don't know if you caught in his testimony, but, you know, he experienced a series of relationship challenges and failures, and then he gave his life to Christ. He found Christ. But then he experienced more relational failures. Well, what does that mean? Well, just coming to Christ doesn't mean that you won't fail again. What it means is that Christ will meet you in your failures and your faults and that his grace will strengthen you to move forward and move onward. So you might be here today and you might feel like a failure of sorts. You might feel ashamed because of certain things that's happened to you in the past that just won't let go. You might feel internally unworthy of Christ's love. You feel bad about what you've done, you've done and you know what? You are unworthy. You are. Cheer up. You're worse than you could ever imagine. <laughs> but you are more beloved than you could ever dare dream. Because the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, is greater than all of your sins and all of your faults and all of your failures, past, present, future. This is the amazing thing. And so when... Jesus comes and he says, peace to you. 
peace to you. He says, you're forgiven and you're honored. I treasure you. You're important to me. But Christ also brings proofs of the resurrection. He says, see my hands and my feet. It's my, I myself. Touch me and see. You know, it was mentioned that the disciples could not comprehend that Jesus uh, would rise from the dead. Uh, they would not believe the women's testimony. It was like idle words to them, nonsense. They would not believe the angel's testimony. They would not believe these two disciples on the road to Emmaus' testimony. The only testimony that they would believe was Jesus himself. Jesus had to appear and show himself to banish all doubt. And so Jesus knew that a mere appearance would not be enough. Even speaking words would not be enough. Just showing it because they thought they saw a ghost, an apparition. Jesus needed to dispel all false notions. So he commands, he commands them to touch him, to touch his hands, to see where the spikes were. You, can, you remember those spikes. By the way, Jesus is the only one in heaven who will have scars on his hands on his feet, in his side, as an eternal reminder of an eternal love for us and for you and me. Jesus wants his disciples to know it is him. It is he himself. So, so I'm trying to imagine, uh, you know, he's surrounded by his disciples, and he's, he's basically saying, examine me, check me out, feel me. Look, this is real flesh here. I got bone structure. There's blood flowing through my veins. Now, of course, Jesus was in a little different state, wasn't he? Because he could just pop into a place and pop out, you know? Like, the stone really didn't need to be rolled away for Jesus. I mean, he could have just gone through the stone, right? The stone was rolled away for his disciples, for us to know that he wasn't there. And so Jesus says, touch me, see me, feel me examine me. I can only imagine that in that, see, that period there must have been a giddy hilarity. Can you believe this? Can you believe Jesus? We saw him die. We saw him buried. He is alive. He is alive. And it's like it's just too good to be true. I mean, Luke tells us that for joy they couldn't even believe it. It's just too fantastic. You know, the closest thing I got to an experience like that was uh, when I was courting Maria. And uh, I had told her uh, pretty early on in our relationship that I loved her. I was, I had fallen in love. And I told her that. And when I said that, I, I, I was telling her that virtually that I wanted to her for a lifetime. But it was months before she reciprocated anything like that to me. I'm telling you, I mean, she really made me, like, work uh, to earn that. And so, by God's grace, she continued in our relationship. And I'll never forget, it was in the basement of Covenant Seminary Library in St. Louis. We're down there, and I was studying, and then she tells me, I love you. And I didn't say anything to her. I was just actually stunned. I walked away from her. I went into the men's room. I looked into the mirror, and I said, did you hear what she said to you? <laughs> she said, I love you. What that meant was 
that she wanted to spend her life with me. I knew those words. Those were very powerful words. It took a long time for her to say that. It felt too good to be true. But when Jesus meets his disciples as the physical, resurrected, bodily Lord, who comes to them with his peace, who exposed himself, it is like unbelievable. And so he has to like bring them down. He says, hey, does anybody here have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Well, it was actually, you know, maybe Peter's mother-in-law made him a broiled fish lunch. And so, well, we hear some broiled fish. And so he just eats this common food to, re- to just confirm that this is no joke. This is real. I have conquered death, and I've come back for you, and I want you to know that, that I love you. And, and it, that what you're seeing here, you know, Jesus, we find in John's account that when we see him, we'll be like him talks about the resurrection, that Jesus is reflecting what we're going to have in our own bodies, that he's the first fruits of the resurrection. Well, they are totally astounded. They are totally amazed. Uh, but, you know, this was the first day, and this wasn't sufficient. Jesus knew that, you know, a one-day appearances would not be sufficient. So Jesus met with his disciples in many various occasions over a period of 40 days. 40 days. That's what Acts chapter 1 tells us. He met uh, with the disciples uh, at the Sea of Tiberias and, and had lunch, uh, breakfast for them. Uh, he meets before 500 at one time. Uh, over and over again, uh, the foundation of the Christian faith is that there is a Lord, there is a man who went to die and who rose again from the dead, and that is the basis of our faith. Uh, N.T. Wright, he's the bishop of the uh, Church of uh, England, and, and uh, he's a leading New Testament scholar and historian. He's written a book on the resurrection. It's 800 pages of scholarly research and historical evidence, and he gave it to a friend, a liberal uh, theologian scholar, to ask him to review this, and he did. And, and this is what uh, this uh, scholar said. I can't comprehend any other explanation that could exist than Jesus bodily rose from the dead, but I'm just not ready to accept it. I think he knew what that would mean if he would actually embrace that reality, but in his mind, rationally, he could not think of any other valid explanation. But what does the proof of the resurrection mean for you and I who believe and who accept this? Well, it means that there is a real and certain hope for our future. You know, when David says, my heart rejoices, or my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices, because you will not abandon me to the grave. He's talking about himself. And, of course, he said, you will not let your Holy One see decay or corruption. Uh, You have shown me the path of life. Uh, You have filled me with joy in your presence, and there are eternal delights in your right hand. I mean, David is saying that it's not his spirit, a ghost figure. It's his body that is going to be resurrected for a future hope and eternal delights. And so we see that that there is this great hope. And the reality is if Christ did not rise from the dead, as Paul says, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins and that we are to be pitied more than all people. Uh, Mark Twain uh, has this to say, and I would say that If Christ did not rise from the dead, then Mark Twain would have 
a lot of merit in this statement. He says, I've, I suppose that at those solemn times when we wake in the deeps of the night and reflect, there is not one of us who is not willing to confess that he is really only a soap bubble and has little worth the baking. He said life is, we laugh and laugh, we cry, then cry and cry, then feebler laugh, then die. That's a pretty dark, despairing statement. I mean, I choose to believe that we are more. I choose to believe that there is more. There's a recent uh, movie that came out called Boyhood. Uh, it won a bunch, of, it was a landmark film. It was kind of the uh, Huckleberry Finn of the 21st century. And it's about, uh, it took uh, over a 12-year period, a boy, they, they called, uh, uh, what's his name? They called him... Uh, Mason, thank you very much. They caught a Mason. We have some people that have seen this. And for, from 6 to 18, they captured the life. And it wasn't a full script written out. It was something that was progressing, and they kind of wrote it over time. But uh, he has an older sister named Samantha who has already gone off to college, and now Mason is getting ready to leave for college his mother has gone through multiple uh, marriages and divorces. Uh, she has uh, downsized, and she's living in an apartment. Uh, she had to get rid of a lot of stuff, but she's kept some treasures, and one of the treasures that she kept was the first photograph that her son made. He had a gift in photography, and so she was packing his first photograph in, in his box as he went off to college as, you know, as a reminder and he, he didn't really treasure the photograph, and so he takes it out. And, uh, and so she's holding this photograph, and she's sitting in the kitchen, and she just goes into some uncontrollable weeping. And Mason says, what's wrong? Mom, nothing. No, Mom, what's wrong? Nothing. And then she said to him, this is the worst day of my life. Mason says, what are you talking about? I knew this was going to happen. I didn't know you were going to be so happy to be leaving. You know, Mason, he's, he says, well, it's not that I'm that happy. What did you expect? She said, do you know I'm realizing that my life is going to go just like this? This series of milestones, getting married, having kids, getting divorced, the time we thought you were dyslexic, when I taught you how to ride a bike, getting divorced again, getting my master's degree, finding the job that I wanted, sending Samantha off to college, sending you off to college. You know what's next? Huh? It's my blanking funeral. Just go and leave my picture. And then he says, aren't you jumping to conclusions? Or aren't you jumping like 40 years ahead or something? And this is what she said. I just thought 
there would be more. I just thought there would be more. For the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that there will be more. That in Christ, all the promises of God for all of your dreams will come true. You want a better body? You'll get one. You want to dance better? You will. You want to play better music and you don't even play now? You will. You'll run faster. You'll even fly. You want to experience the greatest romance that you could ever imagine? You're going to get that much better. It'll be beyond all of your dreams. Uh, Vic uh, King, who actually great, gave a great offertory song today, he also works with our media, and he's been asking the leaders uh, to give uh, headshots for the web because he says the second biggest hit on a particular church website is that people want to see their leaders. And so he's been asking for our headshots, and I've been trying to think, oh, what kind of headshot am I going to give him? And so I've been tempted to give him this one. Well, that was back in Covenant Seminary days, and uh, I had I'd gone to a, you know eye examiner some recently, and uh, she was saying, well, what you know what color eyes do you have? And I said, well, I guess they're hazel. I said they used to be blue. I said, you know, I'd really like to have my blue back, and. Uh, you know, I'd like to have, here, let's show the next picture. Uh, so, you know, I would like to have my hair back, you know. I, I would like to have my eyes back. You know, it just feels like we're losing stuff as time progresses. And guess what? We are. Somebody said, well, growing old is great. Because the alternative, well, well, Paul says actually it's better to be away from the body and be with the Lord. But of course, we'll have our bodies. But you know what? I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to experience the glory of God. And you know what? The resurrection means you will. The resurrection means that there is more. Your longings, your yearnings, your unmet desires are all pointers that God made you for something far greater. Now, C.S. Lewis said this so well, If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. They are only a copy, an echo, a barrage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. And I think that is what Jesus is encouraging his disciples to be about, to keep their eyes fixed on him, the glorified Christ, because this is where they're going. But they have a mission here. What does erection mean? to those grieving families and friends of that 150 passengers who boarded the German Wings A320 airline last week who entrusted themselves to that co-pilot who, who manically crashed 
that airline into the French Alps. What does the resurrection mean to the 150 family and friends of those university students in Kenya whose lives were snuffed out by the Somali militants? And what does the resurrection say to Tavon Williams and Latasha, Latasha Walker, who just lives just a few blocks south of us on 26th Street in Greenmount, whose house suddenly caught fire last Sunday, Palm Sunday, while Tavon, the father, was able to save his twin uh, eight-month-old daughters as he went back in the house to rescue his three-year-old, he could not enter because of the flames, the fire, and the smoke. And she was lost. The mother, Latasha, was at work. Now, how do you console parents in such a horrible loss? What does the resurrection say to them? It says that there is a God who knows. There is a God who cares? You know, the scriptures remind us in Psalm, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It says in, in, in Exodus, God has indeed seen the misery of his people. It says that God has heard their cries, and it says that God is concerned about their suffering, and he has come down to rescue them. Jesus said that all of the scriptures, the law, Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, they're all about him coming down, coming down to rescue his people, to live and to die and to rise again. It says that Jesus, he enters our, we our, our grief and he weeps with those who weep, but he does not weep as one without hope. And he encourages us not to weep as those who have no hope. On Tuesday night, about 100 or so folks gathered together around uh, this home. And it says, reading the paper, that they were singing songs, singing songs. People gathering around just a few days later to sing songs. What kind of songs do you sing? in such a tragic moment. How do you sing songs in that time? What kind of people find songs to sing in that tragedy? The kind of people who know deep loss and suffering, whose parents or grandparents and great-grandparents know the deep, deep loss and suffering and yet have found a God who meets them at the bottom who finds a God who is there, who is the hope and a resurrected God. It is those kinds of songs. It's the songs when the sorrows like sea billows roll, who find the God whose eye is on the sparrow, and I know that he watches me, that through the storm and through the night, he will lead me on to the light. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me home. Uh, Rebecca Eklund, Dr. Rebecca Eklund, who's a, mem a member of our church or tender and uh, professor at, at uh, Loyola University, 
uh, wrote a book on Jesus' laments, and she talked about how the Christians in the early churches uh, would experience Christ's presence and his resurrection. Uh, and it said that the manifestation of that comfort in Jesus' ministry in church signified that there was a promised end to the lament when there will be nothing left for us to weep, nothing left for which we can protest because Jesus has risen from the dead. The whole movement of history is towards a destiny where there'll be a total resolution of all of our losses and he will wipe every tear from our eye. And so the resurrection of Christ means this power, this power that Jesus says will be upon his disciples as they stay in uh, the city and as they wait to be clothed from this power from on high. This is the hope. This is the hope that you and I have, the living hope that Peter talks about into an inheritance that can never spoil or fade or, or perish kept in heaven for you. This is the hope that will not disappoint. And so maybe you're here today and you're saying, I'm ready. I'm just, I'm ready for this. I'm ready for this Jesus. I want this Jesus. You know, what do you have to do? Well, you actually don't have to do anything. You just have to believe. You just, you know, as Romans tells us, if we you know, confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead, we shall be saved. You know, it's, it's embracing Christ. It's, it's just claiming him, confessing. Uh, and so maybe you're here today, and if you're ready to do that, we are, we are, we celebrate that with you. Uh, Bulletin gives you some things. We would love to pray for you. You need to re recognize that if you do that decision, it's not because somehow you just discovered this. It's because God's opened your eyes. Just like the scriptures tell them, the disciples didn't catch all this until he opened their understanding, their eyes to see. But maybe you're here, and I just want to thank you. It's just first time or you've been kind of tracking churches and you're here. I want to thank you for being here again. You know, one of the things is you still have questions. You still have doubts. You still have disappointments and stuff. What I'm encouraging you to do is to hang out with a faith community that is seeking to anchor themselves into the truth of the scriptures that, that's, that center on Jesus. Just hang out. Just be in the room. You see, these disciples were discouraged and doubting. They had all this dis disappointments. But it was while they were together in a faith community that Jesus shows up. And so I'm just encouraging just to show up, just to be part of that community. Give this some time. I'm asking you to just consider that. You say, well, you know, the church is so messed up. It's just so full of sinners. Well, you can just add one more to our mix, you know. <laughs> We're just grateful that you're here. This is not, and listen, if you can find a perfect church, tell us, because I'd like to join that one. We're a messed up group of people, but we're seeking to follow a perfect Savior. But if you are here, and you've already trusted Christ, and you've been in this journey, um, you know, you need to continue to anchor yourself into the Scriptures. You know, Jesus is the key to all the promises and all of the Scriptures. But you need to also stay and wait for that power. You know, a lot of times we try to do stuff in our own strength, and we... But Jesus says, hang out, wait, pray, and watch me work.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence with us, for being in this house today. I thank you for each person that has, is here really by your appointment. We thank you for that. I pray that you would let this message and let your word mainly be the word that would, uh, would bring hope and life. Uh, you are the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.